The episode you are about to hear was recorded pre-pandemic. I hope it provides distraction, entertainment, and some inspiration as we all adjust to our new normal. Stay safe and stay healthy. The following podcast is an Embassy Row production. This is Sarah Riff, and welcome to Having It All in Other Lies, the podcast where I talk to people I admire about letting go of perfection, embracing the chaos, and redefining what success and happiness look like to them. Because ultimately, the only definition that matters is our own. I'm very excited to introduce today's guest, Erin Featherston, to the podcast. Erin is a celebrated fashion designer who launched her eponymous collection at just 24 years old during Paris Haute Couture while I was probably busy launching myself out of a booth at Hyde. Very different trajectories. Now, in addition to her success as a celebrated fashion designer, Erin has recently expanded into interiors. You may have peeped her latest home project for actress Jenna Dewan somewhere online. She is also a wealth of information when it comes to holistic living and applies her learnings about health and wellness to her daily life in a way that I would desperately try to emulate if only she would come over and get it all sorted out for me. Welcome, Erin. We are so happy to have you. Oh, thank you so much. It's really nice to be here with you. Good. So beginning at the beginning, one of the things we love exploring on this podcast is the idea that as kids, we're given a roadmap of what we think life is supposed to look like. And one of the most liberating, but sometimes scary parts of growing up is realizing that things will rarely turn out the way you thought that they were going to. And it is both our opportunity and responsibility to design the life that we want to lead. And I wonder for you, what did having it all look like when you were growing up? Well, I love this question. And it makes me think back to this homework exercise that I really remember doing so vividly in the fourth grade. We were instructed to make our lifelines. And so we had little squares to illustrate, you know, whatever chapter in our life. And I remember mine was about four times as long as everybody else in my class. And so elaborate. I mean, most it was, you're nine years old. It was a lot of, I'm going to grow up. I'm going to live in this kind of a house. I'll be a fireman and uh, I'll have two kids. Mine was super elaborate. It included living abroad. I lived in France, which I ended up doing. I think in the Lifeline, I won Academy Awards, Grammys, all kinds of... uh, All yet to come. And also Nobel Peace Prize. Okay, (laughs) well, that's multifaceted. (laughs) It was a very grandiose vision. And I just remember not realizing until mine was on the wall with everyone else that that wasn't totally normal. No, but like how amazing. I bet I bet if we were to go back to that class that probably you've done a lot more interesting things than some of the other well, kids. That, that I can't say for sure, but my mom recently found that Lifeline project in some box and I was really so happy she had archived it. And the thing that was funny was uh, Grammys aside. Yeah. <laughs> honestly, the the Lifeline didn't look so different from what my life has been, but the interesting thing about that Lifeline is that it there was no vision past age 30. Right. There was no vision of, of a family life or, or anything. It was just very much about individual achievement. Right, which is, which is pretty awesome if you think about it. Well, I think it just points to the question mark that a lot of people 
then face about how to integrate family family with with their personal goals and what that can look like. Did you have fashion in there at all? Or was it just Nobel Peace Prize? I don't think that it was so specifically fashion about being a fashion designer, but it was a definitely like pretty glitzy life. And, like you and, and a big the clothes, life. yeah. Clothes for me were always so important. But the reason why they were important was that I really understood since just not even being able to talk how when you dress the part, you become the part. So clothes to me were always an essential part of my imagination and creating the life and person that I thought that I was destined to be. So flash forwarding then, you've made this sort of roadmap of your own and you're going to have this elaborate life. And like you said, you actually did follow through on a lot of those things and have created that success and that kind of life for yourself. You moved to Paris very young. So where did you find the courage so young to do that? And what was the impetus? Well, I grew up in the Bay Area and then I went to UC Berkeley for undergrad, which is an amazing school, but was a little anticlimactic for me because I was already at that age, super interested in fashion. And there was really very little available. And in academia, fashion somehow was not as valid as some other commercial arts. And I remember ultimately doing my senior honors thesis at Berkeley on postmodern aesthetics and fashion and going to the UC Berkeley library, which is huge. And they have every issue of Playboy that was ever printed, but they didn't have a single Vogue. It was a really, really stigmatized interest, superficial. I remember when I presented even my, my thesis that which was very much about postmodern aesthetics and philosophy. And it wasn't so much about fashion at all. But I just remember the student panel questioning me like, fashion is to blame for, you know, so many social social ills. So it wasn't really the best environment to explore that interest. So when I was approaching graduation, I could not wait to get to design school. And During my college years, I took every summer, every winter break that I could, and I got internships in New York, just exploring the world of fashion and what that really meant. Because I knew I liked it, but there's so many ways to be involved. I worked for a showroom, I worked for a designer, I worked as a fit model. I just tried to see as much as I could, which was really, really valuable because at the end, I actually had tremendous clarity that I do want to be in fashion, but the only thing I want to be in fashion is a designer. So I went to Parsons and I chose to go to Parsons in Paris because I was really fortunate that I got to do a lot of traveling in Europe. I did summers and semesters abroad in Europe and I just felt that New York will always be there and let me kind of take this opportunity now I'm young to do more living abroad. And Paris is just so magical. So going to Parsons there was incredible. And I remember on the first day meeting the the head of the school, the director of the school, and I pretty much told her I'm here because I plan to start my own line and my intention is to develop my skills and get in and out as fast as I can. Because I felt that I already had a BA and I didn't want to spend four more years in school. I wanted to get going. So they had an abbreviated program that was available to people like me who had graduated college. And there was four of us in total in the whole school that were in that boat. And we actually all became lifelong friends. Which was cool. And when I finally met that group, I felt like, oh. Did you feel seen for the first time? I just felt like, oh, finally, like peers, you know, it had been a really long wait. Right. And going through school, you felt like in some ways 
being interested in fashion was sort of looked like frowned upon. It was totally frowned upon and it was an interest that I kept to myself. I mean, later friends from high school, from growing up, from college, all looked at me like they were very stunned to have seen what I went on to do. I think that's because I just always kept it to myself, but I wasn't really surprised at all. I mean, th- uh, that was for sure my intention. So were you not designing when you were at Berkeley? I mean, the closest thing I could get to that was taking a costume design class in within the drama department, but there was absolutely just nothing available. Did you make your own clothes? I did try and make my own clothes, but I honestly, I'm not very good seamstress. Really? No. Okay. So now you're in Paris. (laughs) I learned those skills more at Parsons actually. Right. That was very practical skills, like how to make a pattern, how to sew a garment, drawing, like really technical skills. You know, that's not really what I'm the best at, but it was very important to get that education because as you go on later in your career, you're going to be working with pattern makers, with seamstresses, and you need to have some basic understanding of how garments are constructed. So how long are you there? How long do you stay in the program? And when do you start? You know, I know you were 24 when you, not only did you launch a collection sort of like quietly and like to friends, but you launched during the biggest fashion moment of the year (laughs) in the fashion capital of the world. I mean, that's a lot of chutzpah. It really was. And and sometimes now that I'm older in life, I almost wish I could like have that fearlessness. But I think it was a, a combination of chutzpah fearlessness, and also... Not knowing? Ignorance. Yeah. Naivete. So I stayed at Parsons for two years, and my intention was to create my own line. I made that first collection. It looks so student if I look back at the photos now. I mean, it's like, you can tell. I mean, I personally made every garment that went down the show, and I'm not really a master seamstress or pattern maker. I needed help. So... You know what really happened, actually, now that I think about it? I actually really wanted to get an internship at a French fashion house. That would have been the logical next step. It was what everyone else was doing. But I could not get a stagiaire visa, which is the proper documentation that you need to be a foreigner interning in a French company. I can't remember the details of why I could not get this document, but it was like a visa problem. So then I said, well, you know what, if I can't do that, I'm just going to just go ahead and make my own line. I'll start making clothes. And at first I thought, I'll just maybe go to get a little booth at a trade show. I mean, that was kind of how it started in my mind. And then I had a friend who was a journalist and I invited her over when I was about 80% done with the collection. And she understood that there was a real vision. And she said to me, why don't you show off calendar during couture? I think you have something here. You know, you have two more months. You can fill out the rest of the pieces. And it was sort of like the minute she said it, I was just like, yeah, I'm going to do that. Like, like, forget about that little trade show uh-huh. booth. I mean, honestly, the you know, those booths are expensive. Like, it was kind of the same price. But then I went to every PR in Paris to introduce myself and to ask if they would help. And everyone said no. And they were absolutely right. They were probably like, who is this young American girl? Who does she think she is? She has like no work experience anywhere. I was so green. But I guess I had nothing to lose. Right. And that's, I think, the, the great lesson is to always feel that you have nothing to lose. And finally, this one kind woman who was had been working in fashion PR in Paris for so many years. 
I don't know, she saw some potential. And so she took a chance on me and I arranged the whole show. I mean, I did the whole production. I mean, I personally changed the models. I think that the show took 30 minutes. Oh my God. Because we had like nine models for 30 looks and I was like personally changing them. It was so badly organized, but it was really well attended. And I think people could maybe look past the amateur hour aspect of it. And they saw something there. I think they saw a very whimsical vision. And at the time, I always like to give a little context. I mean, this was 2005. It was sort of like Paris Hilton getting out of the car with no underwear on. Different kind of Paris. Kind of a, a, a less sophisticated Paris. But those were the girls of my age. Yeah. And I was putting forward a very different type of vision on femininity. And I think it was intriguing and fresh. Refreshing. And, and just something really different. And it just kind of got momentum from there. So at that point, obviously you couldn't stay in Paris, right? Because you don't have a visa. Well, I didn't have the intern visa, but I ended up staying in Paris for a total of five years. I stayed there as long as I could. I loved living there. So what happened after that initial show? Did you get orders? Did you start actual production on those pieces? Or did you just create another collection? That first show was great because I just remember... You know, that was before social media too, yeah. where it's so easy to get in touch. Like I remember the phone ring in my little atelier and I, I remember even thinking, how did anyone get this phone How, how did number? you even get an atelier at 24 is what I'm wondering. It was whatever. It was just like a little studio, yes, you know, it, but, but you the, were doing it. The phone rang and it was Elle magazine, mm-hmm. the French Elle, and they wanted to do a profile piece on me. And I was just like, really? You know, how did they even get this phone number? And then what ended up happening was I had a lot of PR agencies that were US-based reach out to me. They had seen it. And that was very helpful because, you know, I managed to do that first show on my own, but then it attracted kind of the right people to help me go to the next level. So then I got a little bit of guidance. Right. And so you stayed in Paris for five years and you kept designing. I kept designing. And then really the thing that brought me back to the US was I continued to make all my samples in Paris. I found this wonderful seamstress and one pattern maker, and the three of us worked together every day in this little atelier. But all of my business was starting to get established in the U.S. I put my collection in a U.S. showroom for sales, for press. Most of the first stores that bought were U.S. boutiques. I actually even had to take my production to the New York Garment District, which was so backwards and ironic because you would think of like made in France. But Actually, there's not that same type of small business network there in Paris. So Right, like you didn't have minimum orders enough or? Yeah, it just there's a lot of couture and high fashion know-how in Paris, but just kind of the nature of French society, those resources are usually all inside of French corporations. So I think the big thing that I was finally like, it's a little ridiculous for me to stay here in Paris when really my business functions are all growing in the U.S. Target called me and invited me to do a collaboration. And that was sort of just the beginning days. And that's so huge too, because that is household name status. It was huge. I mean, they had just done Prenza Schooler and which... You know, I really looked up to Prenza Schooler because they were super young right. when they started, just like me, just out of school. I mean, between them and Zach Posen, like those two really gave me the chutzpah. Like they're super young. You don't need to have 20 years of working in this and that house behind you to just do it. 
It was amazing. And the fact that they found me, I mean, at that time, I had only two little runway shows under my belt and I had done a fashion film, which I think was probably what got their attention because I was very fortunate to have that film directed by Ellen Von Unworth, who's a living legend. And the film starred Kirsten Dunst, who just was kind enough to lend her support to a young designer. And was this like Marie Antoinette time or what? Where, yes. was, where was Kirsten? It was. That's how we met. Okay. Because just- <laughs> she was in Paris doing Marie Antoinette. Right. Which is such a beautiful movie. And I'm obsessed oh, with Marie Antoinette. My favorite film of all time. Yeah. Okay. So you guys meet there. And then, yeah. so you did the fashion film. Was that a short? Well, it was six minutes long, but this was also before everyone was doing fashion films. It actually, no one had done a fashion film in a really long time. Well, you knew that you were going to go on to win an Academy Award. So you were just, <laughs> just you know, you practicing. were just like, let me make a little <laughs> film. But also, I mean, Kirsten's a huge star at this point. And, yeah. you know, obviously you're the toast of Paris and you guys make this film. I'm sure that it got a lot of notoriety. It did. I mean, none of it was really calculated. It was honestly, it was just so sweet and serendipitous and you know, I met Kirsten at a party and she just liked my dress. And I was like, I made this dress and you just, you know, let's do something together. Right. You were creating, but it's sort of like we talk about, there was no real social media, which in a way would be so helpful to promote your business. But at the same time, I think has made people so much more hyper-conscious of everything. And like you said, I think both youth and time were on your side at that point where you had nothing to lose and you just were moving forward, doing what you knew how to do, which is just create and to make things and to try things and see what works. And the results are obviously incredible. And sometimes I think the hyper awareness of the stakes of everything really keeps people from making art that they might make. Yeah. And even that time period was sort of right before the culture changed around people getting paid to sit front row or to wear this dress. Like it was still organic. It was still, you believed in something, you could get behind it and it didn't have to be so calculated. Or I think a lot of times now in in the current environment, maybe someone would like to lend their support to an up and comer, but their hands are tied because they could be in contract with a luxury brand. Right. At that time, so you move back to New York, you have the capsule collection at Target, which obviously is going to catapult your name in a whole different arena. Are you able to enjoy the success of of being like, oh my God, I made it. Like I actually did all these things that I'd set out to do, or was it sort of so focused on the next thing? Well, fashion, it puts you on such a hamster wheel and there's just so much pressure. I always would say you're only as good as your next show. So I moved to New York. I took that Target check. I hired my first four employees because up until then I was a one woman show, which was so intense. But then, you know, growing like that was intense too. And I couldn't even find a place to live. It was all happening so fast because you have to just hit the ground running. And I had a mattress on the floor of, of this kind of live work loft that I had rented to be my office space. And you can say it, your atelier. My atelier. <laughs> but it, well, we were in New York. Right. So then it was a loft. Okay. I actually think that was one of the most intense periods of my life because I was simultaneously doing all the promotion work for Target, which was exciting, but really time consuming. I was in the CFDA Vogue Fashion Fund, which was also exhilarating, but it's a time consuming process that takes up your time outside of you just growing your own business and preparing your next show. And for anybody that doesn't know about that, obviously to be a fashion fund nominee, you have to be doing presentation after presentation, right? In order to do that. 
So you are nominated and then it kind of goes through a series of, not to say tests. It's a competition. It's a competition. Yeah, it's a competition. So they give you different, you have to make a dress, you have to appear, you have to make your most amazing collection of your whole life because Anna Winter's coming and if she, you know, likes it, then... It's like an untelevised Project Runway. Exactly. Okay, so you aren't sitting back on your laurels and just no, like, I don't, here I am, I'm in my 20s. I don't 20s. think I ever like, worked harder. Right, so I have done this in Paris, I've done this film, I'm now in CFDA Fashion Fund nominee. I'm here. You never got to enjoy that in a way. No, 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 no. Isn't it funny how things look a certain way on the outside, but then when you're in it, it just doesn't feel the same? Well, what's funny too is I thought it would always be like that. You thought it would always be like I that thought pace? That, I thought that the pace that I was experiencing, which was definitely the experience of New Kid on the Block, I thought that was going to last forever. In a good way or, or in a way that you feared? No, in a good way. I thought I thought people will always be this interested in what I'm doing. Right, right. And what I didn't understand is that I think when you're a fashion brand, if you can get yourself established and you go through that process, and that was the process I was going for. It's it's really exciting. Every publication will do a story about you. And back then that was what was meaningful of to course, have a no online, story in the There was, no, there was no nothing mm-hmm. else. So so that was still the time of gatekeepers. You know, the, the right store needed to buy you and the right editors needed to validate you. It's not like that anymore. Right. But what I realized is that. Once you graduate past that, yet you're not an advertiser, then you go into the middle ground, which is actually a pretty hard place to be because magazines can kind of only print your story so many times. Right. And also they're beholden to their advertisers. So, you know, everything that they're calling in for their stories has to represent enough ad dollars, you know, so then you, you're working almost twice as hard because if you don't have those ad dollars and you're not the new kid on the block... It's hard not to get kind of lost it's in the midst. It's very hard. And that's, I remember for a number of years, I felt this incredible pressure that I would call pulling the rabbit out of the hat. Like trying to come up with something new all I had, the time? I had sort of just organically done it with the film with Kirsten. And then I was so fortunate Zoe Deschanel wanted to do the next film with me. And she also opened one of my runway shows and sang. And that was really so cool. And, and those then, are like things that are happening organically and those as things favors. Just happened organically, you know, because those girls, they loved the clothes. They just were happy to do it. And that was all there was to it. But then you sort of set yourself to a standard. It's like, well, right. They're like, well, who's singing at this show? Who's next? Who's next? And then, and then you're like, oh, the clothes are not always enough and you want your work to be enough. But then you just get into this pressure of how you're going to make the next magic trick. Right. Do you think did that pressure take some of the fun out of designing for you? I think the thing that truly took the most fun out of it happened to me later on because in 2011, I shifted my brand into a contemporary positioning. That just meant so many different changes because instead of doing four or five collections a year, all of a sudden it's 12. That's a delivery for every month. And then the stores start to really have a hand in your merchandising. And you might make the collection you love, but they come in and they're like, well, we're doing some random color. Turquoise. Store-wide. Our February drop is all about turquoise. So we need it from you if you want to be in. Right. You can't afford not to accommodate. But, you know, the more and more slowly, slowly you start to do those things, 
it does start to get away from you. Right. And then the whole vision that you had for a collection is not, it's no longer what people are seeing when they go into a store because they don't see the entirety of the collection. They see those bits and pieces that either they've bought into, or maybe in this case, you've specially made for whatever their, you know, month special was. And then suddenly it's just not a reflection of your vision at all. Yeah. And then, you know, the economy was, it's been a hard time for the industry. And then everyone just wants to keep pushing your prices down. That affects the kinds of fabrics you can use and, and the types of finishings you can do. And, you know, that all started to take the fun out of it. Right. So at what point did you think about like, do I want to keep going with this? Is there something else that I want to do? I always felt so deep in that there was actually no way out. Also, you're responsible for all your employees at this point. Yeah. At the peak of my business, I mean, I had 30 employees, which I know in the grand scheme of things doesn't sound huge, but for me as an independent business owner was huge. Of course. Those are 30 people depending on you. It was a lot. It was a lot. And things just move so fast. And then the more successful you become, the bigger your sales become, you're operating at much higher risk also because- if uh, something goes wrong with a million dollar order, you've just, you're left you know, holding the bag. Yes. So the pressure is really on. I don't know if this is around the same time, but you had transitioned to making the move to LA, right? Well, so I got married in 2013 mm-hmm. and then I was pregnant in 2015. And it was like the minute that I got pregnant, I just felt like I got to get out of here. Out of I, New York, out, out of, of fashion or... Out of New York, Mm -hmm. I felt like my body was expanding and I just literally felt like there was not room. Like the city was closing in on you. I just felt like I I can't do this. I I can't even be pregnant here. And I certainly couldn't have a baby in New York. So I think only with the like mild insanity of pregnancy hormones, we decided, okay, we're gonna move to LA. Me having grown up in California, I always sort of had an abstract vision of returning to the West Coast to have children. My own childhood was so attached to being in nature, being around trees, being outside that I just couldn't imagine being bringing children into the city, even though I actually think it's probably pretty fun to be to be a kid in New York. Yeah. But just for me, I just couldn't imagine it. This is a major transition period for you because you're moving to a whole new state. You're starting a family, you're balancing, running your business still. What does that look like? Oh, well, the pressure was on. So we decided we would rent out our apartment in New York to not, you know, make any too permanent changes. And then I decided that there was absolutely no way I could think about moving my business because as I told you, 12 deliveries a year, that means you're in a different point of a cycle, a production cycle on, on 12 different things that even like one day of business disruption could have such high consequences. There was just no thought of how I'm going to move it. So I just thought, okay, I have a pretty good team. I've worked with them for a long time. I was always very hands-on, but I felt like, okay, we can do this and I'll just work long distance, come back and forth. And my long-term vision was that in time I would rebuild just a design studio here in LA that I could be hands-on with daily and that I would leave the more like business functions in New York. So that's kind of how I thought it would work. How did it work? Well, great because I gave birth in LA. I moved, we, we took that final flight from New York to LA. I was seven and a half months pregnant. We had to crash at a friend's house, which was very 
challenging. That's, that's what every pregnant woman wants to do. Right? <laughs> just like in her nesting stage is just crash at a friend's. I remember my due date was February 22nd. We got access to our to our new house on like January 3rd. And of course, I wanted to do a renovation on it. So I had like six weeks to do a renovation. We didn't bring one piece of furniture. All we brought was our mattress. So we had like... You guys brought a mattress cross country? Yes. And by the way, it's so special. I bought it in Paris. (laughs) So you traveled with it from Paris to New York? I brought it from Paris to New York and then it made it here to LA. Okay. Is this still the mattress you're sleeping (laughs) on today? It's really good mattress. (laughs) Is it specially like firm? Well, it's also a custom size. Oh. So, you know, my husband is six foot five. Oh, okay. So it's really special mattress. (laughs) Okay, so you have your mattress. You're seven and a half months pregnant. We had like one chair. I was just like, oh my God, I got to get this house furnished. Thankfully, my baby was 10 days overdue. I gave birth in the house. You gave birth in the house, Mm -hmm. in your new house. Luckily, not your friend's house where you were crashing. In my new house that was luckily not furnished. Right. It was funny. I was very upset that it wasn't furnished for the baby? When the baby was born, but actually that was perfect. Did you give birth on that mattress or did you? No. No. <laughs> because then I would say you really had, like that mattress is never but, leaving. But you know, I did lay down there after I right, gave birth. Right, Did you have a water birth? Well, we had the whole water tub, but that's not in that's the not where, you where ended he, up. he came out, but. Oh my God. Okay. So all of a sudden then you have your new baby, you're mm-hmm. here in LA are things looking like you thought they were going to look in terms of being able to maintain design on the West Coast and then keep all the business portion situated in New York? Well, my plan for that first year was to just go back and forth. And I have to say, actually, it was such a great year. I did so many things that I wanted to do. I actually, for me personally, creatively, I think having a little bit of space from my office gave me perspective. The ability to just focus on launching like certain projects that I wanted. So that year I actually relaunched my designer line, which was something I had wanted to do after many years of being in contemporary. And I loved that runway show. I loved it so much. It was one of my favorites. It was my spring 2017. It was also my 10 years of showing in New York anniversary. And I just like still wear those clothes almost every day from that collection. I did a denim collaboration. I did a jewelry collaboration. I did a shoe collaboration. Then I did a home collaboration. So So you got like a whole kind of like re-energized. Yeah. Maybe also sometimes when you're so immersed in something, it's like you can't see the forest despite the trees. And stepping back from the business and having this new energy in your life, you were able to look at it from a different perspective and kind of approach it differently. One irony that I started to see in kind of my last years in New York was that, you know, I always had a vision of creating a lifestyle brand. And when I first, first started, it sort of was, I mean, it was simple. It was sort of like, I was this, you know, single girl in Paris and there was lots of fun parties and I would make these that was fun your dresses. Lifestyle. That was the lifestyle. And then I met other cute girls who wanted to have cute party dresses to go out. And it actually, that was kind of the seed of the brand, but then you have to work harder, harder, harder. And I felt like this is so ironic. I'm trying to build a lifestyle brand. I have no life. I am right. shackled to a desk. My life is looking at Pinterest. That's how I'm living life. 
Right, but I mean, from I the outside, take- imagine everyone who's reading all these features on you. They're not seeing that. They're seeing those photos of you in those dresses, probably at a cool event. You know what I mean? Yeah, but I mean, I didn't take a single vacation or even like my birthday off for a decade. Right. So I think when I got to LA, even though I was working full-time, I was working full-time from home, I had the space to have a life again. And I think that's how it was so easy and natural to launch all of those things that were there to round out more of a lifestyle vision. And when did you decide that you want to move into interiors? What really started was I was furnishing my house. I met this woman, Tammy, who has a a furniture line called Fragments Identity, and I commissioned all of this custom stuff for my own house, which I was like desperate to furnish. And it was going so well. And what we made together was so cool. I said, oh, well, why don't we just commercialize this into being a line? So that came about organically and it was fun. And in terms of shifting into interiors altogether, I had always done my own homes, my office spaces and custom goods. It just kind of pushed the vision further. I was actually having a trunk show for my clothes. And then one day a woman came who was just invited as a friend of a friend that was just say no. And she was in the process of founding the Jane Club together with June Diane Raphael. And their vision was to create a home-like environment that was also a co-working space that was also a caregiving space for children. Here in LA. And so that's like a workspace really catering to women. To working moms. Right. And they said, would you do it? And I I was like, oh yeah, I will. So that was kind of my first project that wasn't for me in terms of interiors. And it was so fun. And I think what I really loved about it was I saw, if I compare the number of hours I put into designing the Jane Club compared to the number of hours that it would take to do one collection, I felt that the impact was so much greater. I felt like, wow, that space is there and it takes care of whoever walks through the door, male, female, young, old. It doesn't matter what your size is. Everyone could feel nurtured or feel the, the care of the space. So all of the energy that I put into it I felt like it was paying off more. Right. You could put the same number of hours into a dress and maybe someone will buy it. Maybe it'll maybe be, it suits someone else. Maybe. maybe it'll be a part of someone's special memory. You don't really know. You know, it's so specific to get the dress to the owner. Like she has to have the money for it. She has to have the body for it. And she has to have the place to wear it. And she has to be able to find it. It's like... Threading, it's like a much more threading a, a much target. smaller yeah. needle. Okay, so in this working mother space, did you find because at this point you two are a working mother? Yeah. Did you with your business? Did you take a maternity leave? Do you take any time to yourself? Because that's really hard to do as a business owner. No, I really didn't. I was definitely always answer, answering emails and everything. But I think just because I was at home with my baby. By virtue of you being You out, know, yeah. I was like, if I did the whole day in pajamas, no one knew. So right. I did have a little bit of space. But I remember my my design team flew out and I was two months postpartum. And we did this like crazy three-day marathon, design marathon to get the next show ready. And I remember it was too much for me. And that was like one of the first times where I, I, I just had to like excuse myself. And I think I went to my room and cried. And I didn't have help for my baby either. I remember that day, I, I was so desperate. I called a friend and said, could you please just come and hold my baby for a couple hours because I have to get this done. These girls are here from New York. They're going back and our work is not done. And I just didn't have the, the capacity. So funny because I recently gave birth again 
And at two months postpartum, I, I guess I had a little more respect for what that feels like. And I was thinking, how did I crank out a whole collection in two days at this stage? I mean, it's so early after giving birth. So I didn't really give myself too much time to recover. But I mean, to kind of wrap up this whole story, basically, long story short, was as I was approaching my son's first birthday, he was becoming very mobile. We had done so many trips back and forth to New York because my place was rented out, getting Airbnbs, being there in the winter, all the reasons why I didn't want to have kids in New York, like facing them, but even harder because you're traveling. I just said, you know, I I proved to myself here that I can do this. We actually had our greatest year ever. We had our biggest sales. I launched all those things I wanted. And then I just felt like, why? Why? Because the person who was really, really suffering was me. Right. And I didn't want my son to suffer. I didn't want to miss out on his early years. So I just decided that I felt satisfied with what I accomplished. Which is huge. And I decided to close my business quietly, which was a really horrible, scary decision. I mean, I, I cried for, you know, every day for so many months. I mean, saying goodbye to employees who've been with you for so many years. And, you know, it's also complicated. You have to do those things in secret because you need the stores to pay you right. for the goods you've already shipped. And unfortunately, they don't always feel incentivized to if they know your business is closing. So all of that was also just really complex. and engages you with kind of the not so fun part of uh, what it means to run a fashion business. I mean, also to have the courage to prioritize yourself and your family, I'm sure was not an easy decision to make, but I wonder if you ever felt like there was a there there, meaning, you know, we talked about when you were a little girl and you put all these things down on paper of what you wanted to accomplish. I think so often what happens is people set out to accomplish things and in a way there's never any time for reflection to sort of take a moment to acknowledge that maybe you did reach some of those milestones and maybe it didn't mean to you exactly what you thought it would and now there was another portion of your life that needed more of your attention and so you were ready to kind of pivot in a different direction. Definitely. But there's just a lot of life changes for me in in a short time, moving, becoming a mother, closing my business. I mean, all of those things were markers of of one identity that I knew so well. So it was a lot to, to kind of turn upside down. And I remember like when, you know, when it was truly over with my business, looking at my phone, thinking, is my email broken? Right. No, there's not, not one thing in the inbox. It's like Pavlovian, like it's you like, missed it. Nobody needs me. You know, because you're you're used to being so essential to the you're you're the, at the center of a world you've created, right. and when that world ceases to exist, it was like some days. You know, the only person I was having a conversation with was my housekeeper, and thank God for her. But was <laughs> but it, that was pretty shocking for me? Right. Like, how long do you think it took you to get used to the fact that like it was not that pace anymore? I mean, I think I'm still getting used to it. And it's funny is because I actually have taken on a lot of projects right now. And to me, it all still feels like nothing. Right. It feels like a hobby. It doesn't even feel like real work to me because I'm, I'm used to working at such an intense pace. Are you glad that you made this decision? Yeah. I'm so glad. I think it was hard. I mean, it was really hard for me. And I had a, a, a major internal identity crisis. crisis, definitely for like a year at least. It's funny, actually, having my second child, I think, has somehow brought a lot of peace to all of that. Yeah. I was going to ask, you know, when you were doing all that, if you ever felt like 
you know, you were kind of crushing it work-wise, but your home life was hanging by a thread or vice versa. And it sounds like you kind of had that come to Jesus moment when you were designing with your team where you were just like, this is not working for me. Like I told you, I had a home birth and I was committed to being an attachment parent. So I actually made such an intense level of commitment as what kind of mom I was going to be. And I, I mean, I did not sleep train my first son. So, I mean, every nap he was like on my body. You know, I remember it's just, he was in an ergo baby napping and I would stand up and do my emails for two hours. I mean, I destroyed my back like that. So I feel like the person who really suffered was actually me. I wasn't going to let him be compromised. So it was me who was really hurting the most. Right. I know you're super passionate about wellness and holistic living now. Were there any things that were your saving graces during that time? Was that something you were always passionate about? Yeah. Or did it did it happen more when you got to California? Because it's very, you know, like on trend in Los Angeles. Right. Well, I think that was part of why I was so happy about moving to Los Angeles because I felt like, oh. This You're is... already there in your mind. Yeah. I'd been on a holistic like wellness path really since being a teenager because I Growing up in the Bay Area, actually, that was a pretty wonderful place to grow up because that was already available in the culture. I can remember by myself at 17, like finding an acupuncturist and going to be treated. Right. You were very ahead of the curve. Yeah. That's been a part of who I am for a long time. That's why I was like, this is a great place to give birth, for example. I mean, the birthing community here in Los Angeles is so amazing. And I was so grateful for that because I was trying to find resources that I would have affinity with in New York. And they're just not quite as available as they are here. Okay. Erin, what's your, we're calling it the riff. What's your like one thing that's like, it's a practice. It is a principle. What is your like one thing that like is really helpful for like keeping you either organized or together? Are you ready for it? I'm like, (laughs) I'm kind of building it up. Are you ready for it? I'm ready for it. So I've been practicing hydrocolon therapy Okay. For almost a decade. It's getting gravity method colonics. Okay. You basically run water yes. through your intestine and the water exits out. So tell me on a practical level, how are we doing that? So normally you, you need to go to a practitioner. Mm-hmm. Listen, I mean, if you're talking like you just want to get started, like maybe once a year, maybe once a season. I was going twice a week. Okay. What are you doing now? Twice well, a week still? I actually have installed one in oh my, my house. Okay. <laughs> so now I, I'm so addicted to it that I just need to be able to, to self-treat. I've so actually I've taken never the even therapist, heard of this. I've taken the therapist out of the picture, although I was working with the most amazing woman here in Los Angeles. Her name is Fatima Love Williams. So if anyone in the LA area is interested in exploring her, Gravity Woods Method, hydrocolon therapy. She's the one and only who's doing them. So this is like a pipe or what, what, what does this look like? What, what does, does this, this look like? Is this a tube? There's tubes. There, <laughs> there's, there's tubes involved. There's a okay. tube and you're, so you're self-administering. You've got a tank of water mm-hmm. that is mounted on the wall mm-hmm. above you. You are laying on a table could be like a massage table is like a typical setup. Or the a, mattress that we've talked small, about before. No, I would never chance ruining my mattress. Okay. With your, <laughs> okay. Water involved. Okay. Okay. So you have a thin tube that carries the water. Yes. 
it attaches to a device called a speculum. Mm-hmm. The speculum has an inflow and an outflow. You put the speculum inside your body. We're going up the poop chute, yeah? Mm-hmm. Okay. And then you have a bigger tube that's called the waste tube that also connects to the speculum, and that is pulling matter out of the body. What are we pulling out? Just water or matter? What's matter? matter? Uh, we're- waste matter. Matter. Okay. Waste matter. This is mind-blowing to me. I've never even heard of this. And so how often do you do it? I mean- from- Did you do it today? You did Did you do it before you came here? Yes, girl. Yes, girl. Okay. I wish that we could have done this on video, like from the hydrocolonic station. Okay. So, and how long does it take? About an hour. An hour. But you can do other things while you're doing it. Like You could, but it's so enjoyable for me. I, I, would, I don't even want to miss a minute of it. Really? I don't use my phone on that table. It's just like, okay, sometimes if I have one hour that I don't have to be taking care of kids or working and I'm thinking, how am I going to use that hour? Am I going to be doing yoga? Am I doing a meditation? You're like, no, no, I'm, I'm like, going to my station. If I only have one hour and I'm going to choose one way to support myself through self-care, that's what I'm going to do. So this is not a, you know, you can't try this at home if you're not like a seasoned person like you you are. You cannot try this at home at all, by the way. I mean, me even getting that installed was like a huge plumbing project. It was a huge undertaking. I can only imagine how you explained it to the people who came out. Mm -hmm. You were like, I need to fasten this to the wall because I'm going to be throwing this up the poop chute in a very relaxing (laughs) manner of an hour of my time that I want uninterrupted. (laughs) And like here in LA, nobody batted an eye. But let me tell you, why is that my number one thing? Why is that? It's not just what it does for like the digestive tract. It's like instantly my face looks better. It looks like I've had a facial. My eyes are brighter. Like today, I was quite congested this morning. We're both suffering through this a a little little bit. Congested, but the minute that I do a colonic treatment, the congestion goes away. Right. I mean, it's just you're bringing oxygen to your whole system from the inside out. It's the fountain of youth. This is not something you do with friends. No. Like it would be very awkward for me to knock on your door and ask to use your station. Yes. And also I didn't even like attempt to do a self-treatment until this year. And I've been getting regular treatments for nine years. So I had a lot of experience. But listen, the wonderful woman, she's a few blocks from her house. Okay. Well, I'm going to... So you can go to her. I'm going to try it out because I've never wanted to turn down a fountain of youth or like a little poop shoot action, you know? (laughs) Erin, I'm so happy to have had you here. I mean, it seems like you've had a major transition with your life and your business and you are finding your footing and and finding happiness in a whole different arena than you originally pursued. What does having it all look like to you today? I think having it all means that every aspect of myself feels engaged and expressed. So To me, I really, really do love being a mom so much, and I don't want to let anything infringe on that, but I'm also a creative person, and I must express my creativity, and I also like to be creative in a way that there is material manifestation. So making a dress, furnishing a home is very similar to me in terms of process because you're starting from a concept phase, and you end with finished, tangible goods that is adding value to someone's life. So if you make a dress, you wear it, you have the night of your life, you see it forever in photos, that was something real. 
if you make someone's home, they live in it every single day. It's a backdrop to their entire life. It's a wonderful way to utilize creativity to like actually really support people. So I need to have that balance. If I had time since closing my business where I was really just momming it, and then I felt like under-engaged mentally that I didn't have a project, that wasn't, that's not going to work for me. I just have too much going on in my mind. It's a dance. Yeah, it's all such a dance. I think that's a perfect way to describe it. Okay, how can we keep in touch with you? For anybody who doesn't follow you, where can they find you? I think Instagram is really the place. So my Instagram handle is at Erin Featherston, E-R-I-N-F-E-T-H-E-R-S-T-O-N. And my website, erinfeatherston.com, is where you can see all of my latest projects and follow along. I know that we are both a little under the weather, but we powered through. Yeah, we did it. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Of course. Bye. That's it for today's episode. If you have a chance, please rate and review only the good stuff, of course. Hit subscribe to keep up with new episodes and spread the word to all of your friends. Thanks for joining and please follow along at Having It All Podcast. See you next week.